Our guest today is Dr. Richard Haas. He's the president of the Council of Foreign Relations. He studied and been active in U.S. diplomacy his entire career. Richard, you've seen many times on MSNBC as a commentator on national and international politics. He's a truly distinguished thinker and a brilliant guy. He has a new book out called The Bill of Obligations, 10 Habits of Good Citizens. And you know, it's something we don't look at closely enough in this country sometimes is what is citizenship now? Is it just being in a party? Is it just being on your, your preferred social media platform? Is it just yelling louder than the other guy? I think not. I think Richard will agree that we've got to rebuild American citizenship, not from the ground up, but on the firm foundation we've had for generations and to do some things that are a little different than what we've been doing. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today on The Enemies List. And, you know, I think you have touched something very important with, with this book, with the Bill of Obligations, is... I think Americans for a long time had the luxury that our politics could be easy and we could sort of ignore it. And that civic life was something we sort of rolled out every two or four years and and got angry or got happy and then voted on in the first Tuesday in November and then let it let it go again. And I think we're past that. I think we have to be more engaged and active citizens. And this book seems to start really addressing that. Can you tell us a little bit about it? And what was it the inspiration, I mean, aside from the obvious on why you why you wrote this and where you where you think our our politics are headed and what we should be doing about preserving this country. Well, first off, what you began with, Rick, I think is exactly right. If we had had this conversation ten years ago or so, one, this book would not have been written in that context. But when you know we get up in the morning, we were worried about a lot of things, but American democracy was not on that list. It was one of those things we could safely take for granted, mm-hmm. and we're no longer at that point. Uh, the assumptions that American democracy will either function or or endure. I don't think either of those is a, a slam dunk, whatever expression one wants to uh, uh, use. And that's what really led to the book. You know, I'm a foreign policy guy for the mm-hmm. most part, but the question kept coming up. Uh, literally every talk I give, what keeps you? What, what keeps you up? Is it China, Russia, climate change, North Korea, whatever? And increasingly, my answer was no. It's us that. History suggests from the last 75 years, we're pretty good at dealing with external challenges. We Mm -hmm. intervened and prevailed in World War II, four decades of Cold War, stayed cold, ended on terms that were extraordinarily good for us and the rest. But suddenly uh, things are are different. And if we don't have the ability to to come together to deal with anything from the economy to, uh, say, debt ceiling or uh, immigration issues, uh, if we can't agree on the proper way to conduct a, a, an election, if political violence uh, becomes commonplace, uh, I spent three years as the U.S. envoy to Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. If the United States ultimately develops a version of the Troubles, where we have decentralized but steady political violence, this will be a fundamentally different 
uh, society, the economic, social, political consequences would be would be fundamental. And I can't sit here comfortably in this conversation and say what I've just put out there can't happen. I'm not saying it will happen, but it's suddenly in the area of, of possibility. So what I'm interested in is how do we head that off? Yeah, I think that's I think you're exactly right. This this, this idea that America could slip into something where there's sort of stochastic, noisy, random-ish, uh, small unit, small group, individual level disruptions of our uh, of of the republic and of our of our democratic processes, it really was unthinkable 10, 20 years ago. And and now it's something, you know, not only do, do more Americans say so in in polling, but but we're seeing some of those actions. I think January 6th was one of those one of those moments where you know, the peaceful transition of power in this country, which had gone on for 240 years, suddenly didn't didn't look like America for a lot of people. No, you're absolutely right. I, I had a funny moment after the midterms where someone remarked, wow, someone just gave a concession speech. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my reaction was, wow, I didn't know a concession speech was that extraordinary. But I guess uh, the times they are uh, changing. The other thing is, you know, I've been reading all these reports and books and people are putting out dozens and dozens of ideas and it's what groups like No Labels and others have done for years of this or that political reform, do this on gerrymandering mm-hmm. or this on, on a voting or what have you. And my reaction to a lot of them was, yeah, some of those are pretty good ideas. If they were to be enacted, American democracy, uh, the American economy would be, would be better for it. But the chances of them being enacted were, were, were slim to none. So I decided that what the world didn't need was another laundry list of reforms, but rather to start the conversation of how do we create a political context or environment where good ideas have a chance of coming to fruition. And what I came away from was thinking is what we really need to do isn't, it sounds a bit ambitious, but change American political culture a little bit to move away from just our obsession with rights, with what we're owed, mm-hmm. and instead introduce obligations, what we owe others, what we owe this country, and at least give that give that equal standing. And my thinking is, I'd be curious what you think, is that if we were to do that, and I don't think it's impossible, we can talk about how to get from here to there, then I thought we had a much better chance of dealing with some of the, the policy challenges are coming that are coming at us, and possibly even reaching agreement on, on some reforms. I do think you, what you've hit here is a really interesting valence in our world because this isn't a liberal idea or a conservative idea. This is an idea about preserving that dynamic system that we had back and forth in this country for a very long time, but it will require people to put down Instagram and put down TikTok and think and act as citizens again. And I think that's something that, again, for all the reasons that happened, the luxury of just counting on those rights has always been disconnected in the minds of a lot of people because our country is so providential and so prosperous and so fortunate on the, on the whole that you didn't have to do a lot of the hard work. And I think the biggest challenge of doing this is actually being driven by events. And people do understand now the hard work is the necessary part. We are not going to get away with this without some people, you know, it's, it, it's that old, that old thing of, you, know, you hate the, you hate to go sit for three hours in the school board meeting, but if you don't these days, something's going to go very terribly wrong. And that I think that scales up all the way up to the to the to the presidency, where if 
people and citizens don't take that obligation seriously, the negative externalities and the negative incentives are going to continue to make our system more unstable, more dangerous, less small d democratic as we go forward. Unfortunately, I agree with you. And so, you know, what we need to think about are things that actually individual citizens can do. I think if we wait for some leader to come along who's going to deliver American democracy in a, in a better state, I think it's going to be a long wait mm-hmm. and things are going to continue to, to deteriorate. So what I'm, in, what I'm interested in is what people can actually do. And I've thought about it, you know, religious leaders, you know, so many Americans still go to church or sure. synagogue or mosque. So why aren't religious leaders talking about the importance of, of avoiding violence, that it's illegitimate to resort to violence for political purposes, that looking out for your fellow citizen is pretty consistent with, with, with scripture uh, about being one's brother's uh, keeper. Why aren't American businesses, if they, if they can get up the energy to focus on sustainability or diversity, potentially worthy goals, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. why is not doing something for the rule of law important? Why isn't perpetuating the backdrop to what has been the, the, the environment, if you will, for American economic success? Why are they not willing to stand up and do something uh, there? And then most important, obviously, in schools, why, why, why are civics not required of every uh, young person who wants to get a college degree? Why are civics not taught in a more systematically, more comprehensively, more universally in our middle schools and high schools? This, as you know, this was a country founded on an idea. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea was equality of opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm well aware we didn't always live up to it. Sure. But it's important that we we pass on that idea because otherwise Americans, I think, won't understand why this democracy is worth preserving or worse yet, other ideas will come along and they're really dangerous. And that gets into the world of the conspiracies and, and the rest. If we create a vacuum, uh, if we somehow assume that our political DNA is going to be transmitted when in fact it, it, it's not, I think we're setting ourselves up for, for crisis. Support for Rick Wilson's The Enemies List comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Wilson. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Wilson. Odoo. Modern management made simple. You know, I, I think that's such a such a good point, Richard, that that our political system has been resilient over time, but no system can survive without maintenance and adjustment and tuning and 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 a commitment for people to keep you know, keep changing the oil in the car, keep rotating the tires. So what are some of the other things that you've got in the book that you would, that you think that would lead to a better civic virtue in this country? What, what kind of other engagements should citizens be looking at to help move us out of this danger zone that we're in right now? Well, some of them are simply, you know, attitudinal or behavioral. I'd begin with, I made the first obligation, get informed. Ronald Reagan's comment that he doesn't simply want patriots or patriotism What's essential is that it be informed patriotism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. I expect most of the individuals who are busy trashing the Capitol on January 6th 
thought they were uh, patriots. The problem was they were not informed patriots. They were misinformed about the elections, misinformed about what American democracy requires of its citizens. Uh, so, we, so again, that drives me back to things like uh, civics mm-hmm. being uh, really important. Also teaching uh, what's called information literacy. It's interesting, just the other day, New Jersey became, I believe, Rick, the first state in the country to introduce a course for all uh, high school kids to teach them how to become critical consumers of information. It's not teaching them what to think and the rest, but it's basically saying, how do you know a fact when you run into one? Mm -hmm. How do you know that something's not a fact when you encounter it? Where do you go to to be aware about uh, uh, our our politics and so forth? And I think that's a really healthy thing. I'd love to see a version of of information literacy along with civics become part and parcel of, of education, both at the high school, middle school and high school level. And then obviously at the at the college and sure. and university level. Sure. One thing we haven't talked about, which I'd like to see much more of, is our national service. This is a country where increasingly we don't have common experiences. Now you've seen the literature, what in the academic world is called sorting, S-O-R-T-I-N-G, uh-huh. that increasingly we live in different geographies, we go to different churches, uh, we work in that wherever we, we work. We watch this or that cable station or listen to that radio station. And we have fewer and fewer things that we we share. Even the all-volunteer force as mm-hmm. an all-volunteer force is no longer something that's spread throughout big chunks of this society. Yeah, it's increasingly. Uh, uh, and so I love the idea of incentivizing national service. I think it would break down some of the barriers with government. And I also think it would bring Americans from different places and classes or backgrounds into contact with each other. And that's got to be that's got to be a good thing if we're ultimately going to have some type of a a national uh, response to these challenges. In a country with basically full employment, we still could use a a moment in time after college or before college or during college where young adults you know, Scott Galloway talks about this a lot too. He's like, young adults no longer meet in the traditional ways. They no longer build civic and personal re- relationships like they once did. And and that I think would be something where for the good of the country, for a sense of, of shared commitment, of shared buy-in to our society, that national service, and it's something that other countries have had tremendous success with in terms of giving people a frame on the broad spectrum of responsibilities of citizenship. And while while we don't make the franchise contingent upon a lot, uh, it certainly could be something where federal college aid becomes contingent on national service as well. Well, certainly loan forgiveness. I actually thought the or, Biden yeah. administration mm-hmm. missed an opportunity to condition loan forgiveness on national service. And mm-hmm. I think that would have been a, a, a great idea. We could also add more training to it. So it could, it could make people more employable. Uh, after they, they finish it, we could even, oddly enough, introduce a civics component to it. So you not only do civics, but just like the military has elements of education, we could have elements of education during this one or two years that Americans would be encouraged to take. Employers could say, hey, if you have that experience, we're going you know, to think of you more highly when it comes to deciding who to imply. Uh, who to employ colleges could say the same thing sure that sure. P- young people who have these one or two years of experience out there you know that that would be to us at least as important as an a average and i think that would that would make a real difference in this society i think that's right so 
One of the things that always troubles me right now is that I feel like as one of the things in the, that I see in the conservative movement that fell apart was respect for the rule of law and that re, sort of respect for institutions. This this sense that nothing matters, burn it all down, is tremendously mm-hmm. dangerous. Is there? Do you address that uh, in 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 build obligations? I have, I, but first of all, you're right that you know, I, I was a lifelong Republican and mm-hmm. I was a conservative. And the Republican Party now is on many things, but it's not conservative. Right. It doesn't particularly believe in institutions or in precedents. It's also moved away from some other tenants, like in many cases, a strong national security policy, Mm -hmm. a real respect for privacy, a small role for government in the economy. Basically, the Republican Party has become something I would argue of a more radical populist uh, Mm -hmm. party. With a rising kind of statism. I think the best way to work again. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and indeed, I mean, it's, it's gonna, it's a bit of an excursion, but I think we're going to see elements of in the debate about, uh, the debt ceiling because mm-hmm. we're going to see that certain people won't want to touch certain areas of, of, of the state role. Cause that's now become uh, sacrosanct. It's kind of, it's, 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 it's ironic. And I think it shows real intellectual, uh, confusion. Mm-hmm. And I don't know an easy answer to it. Part of this is is a result to mismanagement of the economy, stagnation of wages, sure. uh, a sense that the future is going to be worse than the past, and that that's what feeds populism in in, in any country. But again, I also think it has something to do with uh, some problems with the quality of our our, our education. I think again, it has to do with the uh, a lack of awareness of how democracy has historically delivered. And indeed, it's one of the reasons that. Uh, democracy has to deliver and where elites have made major, you know, where those with power or authority have major mistakes. And I think this runs the gamut from everything from Iraq and at times Afghanistan to the 2007, mm. eight uh, economic crisis. And we could go on and on. I think it's breeding this alienation from, from government and even from support for, for the country. When people in Washington can't get together and deliver, if we have a failure on the debt ceiling, and interest rates go up and economic growth goes down and unemployment mm-hmm. goes up, this situation's only going to get worse. So I think the ability for people such as yourself and myself who might be advocating for, for more civic engagement, I think we, we need it's going to be more difficult, not less difficult, if the, if the world of politics is, is seen as somehow unable to provide, if democracy is seen as a failure. I think that's so on point that the elite failures in this country, no one's excusing them or saying they didn't happen, but elites alone clearly are not going to either save us or destroy us. We need to have an American populace that that recommits to the hard work of democracy because it is, I mean, as we've seen, as you and I have both seen in, in the end of the Cold War, you know, we thought that, that there was this sort of rising tide of, of democratic capitalism around the world and it was going to be an upward arc. But it really turned out to be a lot harder than it than it it was hoped for, and and America, although we always had all these advantages and all this, like I said, this providential nature of of we we we've been so lucky on so many fronts for so long, but it is not this is not trivial and it's not easy. And I really want to you know encourage folks to to read the book because we've got to find solutions that aren't just you know it's nothing's going to be cured in this country by just electing. 
one or the other party or one of the other set of set of, of of folks. And you know, and Richard, this I was reminded earlier today. I was talking to Tom Nichols earlier today, and we were talking about when we were young staffers, like we were on codels with people like Sam Dunn and Richard Lugar, uh, serious people who could sit down and they they put everything behind what the country needed. Yeah, and we were in some. There were some very delicate moments at the end of the Cold War where this country made a lot of tough decisions on how to handle the collapse of the Soviet Union. That were in a moment where things could have gone very badly, and and I, you know, as I, I was working for Dick Cheney at the time as a very young guy, and I and I remember that the seriousness and the steadiness and the the desire to not you know score a political point, but rather to make America safer and the world safer. And and I yeah. think if po- folks read this book, they'll get that they'll be inspired by that idea a little bit that uh, that we can do things we can do very hard things in this country, and we've done a, consistently done very hard things in this country over time. No, look, amen to a lot of what you said. You're right. Democracy isn't easy. I would simply say that the rewards justify the the time and effort that it takes. You mentioned Dick Luger and Sam Nunn. To me, they're a perfect example of the kind of a uh, I guess, class acts in American mm-hmm. policy, politics, whether you agreed with them or the, on every right. policy is secondary. Uh, but they did put country first. And my own view is we've, we've got a lot too many people in Washington who no longer put country first. They put their own ambitions first or they put party uh, first. Yep. And the only way I know to really correct that is that the, is that when people vote, we need to get more Americans to get informed and then to be informed voters and to reward politicians who do the right thing, penalize those those who don't. And, and that's what's going to ultimately turn things around. And the good news, by the way, and this is your world more than mine, it doesn't take that many more Americans to do this. That's right. We look at how close, whether the recent midterms or recent mm-hmm. presidential elections have been, you know, one or two percent more Americans right. getting informed and voting could have a transformational effect. So I don't think Massive. what we're talking about is pie in the sky here. I actually think this is this is within reach. Uh, no question. And this, is, yeah, this is all doable. And and again, Americans, you know, we we will notoriously do the wrong thing as long as we can, and somehow uh, we 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 end up pulling it out at the last. And I hope we do it in this case. Richard Haas, thank you so much for joining us today on the Enemies List. It's a tremendous a, a tremendous concept here, and I, I encourage folks to uh, go read Bill of Obligations and. Uh, And Richard, thank you again, sir. We hope to have you back soon. Thanks, my friend. I really appreciate it. On today's enemies list, fucking Elon Musk. Bro, I gotta say, I want to tolerate you in some level. You clearly are having a midlife crisis. And who among us in our 50s doesn't at least become midlife crisis adjacent? But the move this week when you could have been riding an incredibly glorious wave, Starship fired 31 out of 33 engines in one of the largest rocket test fires of all time. You were on the very cusp of making an incredible advance in rockets that will alter the direction and the vector of humanity in space. And yet, what did you do? You went out and you cut off a vital part of Starlink for the Ukrainians. You decided unilaterally, because you're clearly listening to the wrong fucking people, that you were going to prevent the Ukrainians from using drones to gather intelligence and to engage in combat operations. I'm sorry, the terms of service, it's always bullshit. You knew what was going on from the beginning. 
You've been leaning and leaning and leaning further and further towards Putin. You've been acting as if Vladimir Putin has an equal claim in an argument where he's a war criminal and an invader. So turning off Starlink and having Glenn Shotwell do it, by the way, you didn't even have the balls to stand up and do it yourself. Having Glenn Shotwell and the Starlink management do it, because we know you pulled the trigger on it, bro. We know you did. Okay. You have made it harder for the Ukrainian people to defend themselves. You've made it harder for the Ukrainian people to fight against a nation that is engaged in war crimes, in attacks on civilians, and that is determined to cause the maximum amount of death and suffering in Ukraine. Now, nothing about using Starlink to run drones for the purposes of reconnaissance and targeting, frankly, was unknown to you six months, 12 months ago. It's a year in on this war. Your decision is going to make it harder for the Ukrainian people to defend themselves. Be on the right side of history for once. Choose the right thing to do. The people that are around you, Elon, I don't know who the fuck they are. I know who some of them are. But Pizza Jack and Mike Cernovich and all these other idiots that you've been letting back on Twitter and that you've been sort of listening to, they're on the wrong side of history, man. You can be a giant. You can be somebody who goes down in history as someone who really fundamentally changed the velocity of humankind getting into space and changed the world in a good way. But the more you listen to these people and the more you side with Vladimir Putin, the more you're going to be on the enemies list. So Elon, you're a smart guy. Get your shit together. This has been the enemies list. And if you've been enraged or engaged or enlivened by this week's episode, Let's do something about it. This podcast is part of Resolute Square, a new front in the war to preserve democracy. We were looking for a place to fight back against the MAGA media, and this is it. In addition to this podcast and many others, each week, Resolute Square members will sit down with me and other founders for an intimate meeting of the minds, talking about what's really going on behind the curtain of American politics and analyzing the minds and the motivations of the people that are shaping this country's future, good and bad along with exclusive analysis and insight from our newsletters, which are anything but conventional wisdom. And yes, we'll also have merch to make the MAGA heads in your life furious. And more. Become a partner in this fight at ResoluteSquare.com enemies. And folks, if you could like, subscribe, and rate the podcast, I would be enormously grateful. And I cannot tell you how grateful and how heartfelt your support has been for this podcast and for these conversations. And we look forward to many, many more. Thanks again.